0: You were mixing the chemicals.
1: I never worked with chemicals before. That was not my field.
2: But
0: you were doing it.
1: He was teaching us. He was the teacher. Me and Salame were the students under his hand. At one time during the work, as it spilled on my leg, I have scars on my leg. Can you show us? I was wearing walking shoes and it made a hole in it. My whole leg went red and inflamed. My leg took more than a week to heal.
0: Did did you help them load the bomb onto the van? No. Did you watch them do it? Yeah. You watched them do it? You didn't help because of your leg? Yeah. The bomb went off in the garage of the World Trade Center on February 26, 1993. Within hours, Ramzi Youssef was on a plane to Pakistan. Salame was arrested when, incredibly, he went back to get his $400 deposit from the truck rental company. Was there a plan for what would happen after the explosion? Was there a getaway plan? Was there a, a rehearsal of what you would say if the police came?
1: No, there was no specific plan. Ramzi Youssef did the operation and ran off. He left the others to their fate. He did not care. He just left.
0: So you were on your own? (laughs) You were all on your own?
2: We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like
3: it, lump it.
4: The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. The problem with America in the last 10-15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't
2: know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute uh, minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation, in every region, now has a decision to make. Either you are with us, or you are
3: with the terrorists. That land over there is yours, You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side.
5: Welcome to the darkened
6: hour. The FBI had a contact across the river in the Masjid Al Salam mosque in Jersey city. Mamdou Zaki Zakari, a heavily bearded Coptic Christian from Egypt who owned an import export firm in Jersey city spent a year and a half spying on the local Arab-American community and the mosque. On January 10th, 1990, Zachary would report back to his handler, Special Agent Kenneth Strange, in the FBI Newark field office, regarding one such sermon from the blind sheikh, Omar Abdel Rahman. Quote, The only thing they want is to establish an Islamic world. They will do anything to achieve it. You have to understand their desire to strike out, to avenge anything that hurts Islam. I asked El Gabri Galbroni, why do you stay here in Brooklyn? And he told me, I want to earn their dollars so that I could stab them in the back, end quote. Unlike Salem, Zachary, who was not able to penetrate the cell's inner circle, had no advance warning that there was a plan to commit one of the most sensational acts of foreign terrorism on American soil before the bombing of the World Trade Center. The assassination of the controversial right-wing Zionist leader, Rabbi Meir Kahana. During the spring of 1991, Wadi al-Hajj received a phone call from Mustafa Shalabi. Shalabi asked al-Hajj to come to New York for two weeks, to take care of the center while he went to Pakistan. The center was part of the Maktab al and Shalabi was effective at recruiting followers and raising funds. He agreed. He started making plans to come and take care of business for the MAC offices in Brooklyn. However, all was not well in the City of Lights. And so, with that being said, In the winter months of January, February, New York City, they are oftentimes brutal, and the massive wind flows off the Hudson River into downtown Manhattan. With the ringing of the new year in 1991, rumors were spreading at the Al Farouk Mosque about its imam, Mustafa Shalabi. Shalabi had been having a growing public dispute with the blind Sheikh Rahman over when the center send the roughly $1 million the Al-Khippah was raising annually. Abdul Rahman wanted some of the money to be used to overthrow the Egyptian government, while Shalabi wanted to send all of it to Afghanistan. The growing resentment for Shalabi even reached the Royal members of the mosque to gravitate towards Rahman, but it was from fear and not respect, which drew them to him more than anything. Shalabi was not welcome even to his own place of worship. This would bring many problems to Shalabi and Rahman, who continued to preach anti Western sentimentism as well as the overthrow of Mubarak in Egypt.
0: And guess who showed up in public in Jersey City yesterday? That Egyptian Sheik, who's the spiritual leader of the guys accused of bombing the World Trade Center. And he warned the U.S. to stop supporting the government of Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak.
7: Mubarak turned Egypt into a police state. He rules with an iron fist. And he is ruling now with an exceptional law. These are the martial laws in Egypt.
3: The
0: Sheikh's followers in Egypt have been linked to terrorist attacks on tourists. Despite harsh words for America, Sheikh Rahman is still here fighting a deportation order for entering our country illegally.
6: February 28, 1991. Shalabi's body was found in his home. He had been shot and stabbed multiple times. And $100,000 was also reported to be stolen. Shalabi is found with two red hairs in his hand. And the FBI soon suspects Mahmoud Abelima, who is redheaded for the murder. Abelima identified Shalabi's body for the police, falsely claiming to be Shalabi's brother. Shalabi had given up the fight and had already booked a flight to leave the United States when he was killed. He had even told his wife to leave the country before him so that they were safe from the reaches of the murderers, who surely would have killed them too. Abdul Wali Zindani takes over as head of the Al-Khepa Refugee Center and apparently will run this office until it closes shortly after the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. He is the nephew of Sheikh Abdul Majid al-Zindani, a radical imam in Yemen with ties to Osama bin Laden. Abdul Rahman, also linked to bin Laden, increases his effective control over the Al Kiba Refugee Center and its financing. Jack Clunan, a former FBI agent at a New York City field office, would later debrief Ali Mohammed. And as Mohammed tells it, it was he who drove Shalabi's wife, Zanib, to the airport and made plans to move her husband back home. Shalabi made the mistake of confiding with his native Egyptian associate in Mohammed who most likely wanted to avoid an accessory to murder, as he would be the one who told Rahman and others at the Al-Fadouk Mosque about Shalabi's plans. With Abdullah Azam and Mustafa Shalabi murdered and out of the way, the Egyptian radical clerics suspecting of killing them both, Omar Abdel Rahman and Dr. Ayman al-Zohari, take full control over the Maktab al kidamat in New York and Pakistan, and all its finances, all under the watchful gaze of the CIA involved with the funding of the MAC officers under a trickle-down effect from an operation called Cyclone. The trial of El-Sayed Nasser was starting, with many of the mosque's prominent figures from the Al-Farouq and the Masjid al Salam in New Jersey attending small rallies and fundraisers for his defense. It was also rumored that Osama bin Laden himself had added to the defense of the man. Notable radical cleric and notable radical lawyer William Kunstler would be Nosser's primary choice to represent him. The charges were steep and the prospect to be sentenced to heavy time were noted. Imad Salem would gradually become accepted by the members of the al Farouk. His close ties to Egypt resonated with Rahman. With Rahman and the mosques, in Brooklyn and Jersey City fully encapsulated with the trial, they found almost no reason that Nocer would escape judgment, especially in a country which had strong ties to its mortal enemy, Israel. Their prayers, however, would be answered.
4: Brooklyn, New York, November 1991. Members of the al Farouk Mosque are raising funds for the defense of El Said Nosser. Nosser is about to go on trial for the murder of Rabbi Meir Kahani. Outspoken civil rights attorney William Kunstler is hired to defend Nosser. Eyewitnesses testify they saw Nosser crouched by Kahani holding a gun. But Kunstler convinces the jury that no scientific evidence links Nosser to the shooting. El Said
2: Nosser was the young Palestinian so outraged by the poison that Kahana spread and was spreading throughout America and throughout Israel.
5: 13 years ago he moved
3: to Israel where he now crusades to throw all Arabs out of that country. The Arab is a cancer in our midst and you don't coexist with a cancer. A cancer you either cut out and throw out well you die.
2: that he engaged in an act of political assassination, sort of Palestinian rage. I think that that was, that was the narrative that Bill had. Um, but then No insisted he didn't do it. Uh, that in fact, he wasn't the gunman. He didn't pull the trigger.
5: They went in with that
3: defense that it carried because nobody could say they saw him. and all the excitement, they saw as usual, nothing. And they proved nothing. And that happened. It caused riots all over the world. The trial was bitter. There were several times during the proceedings itself where fights started right in the courtroom between these two sides. We want
5: justice! We want justice!
7: Two Arabs for every Jew. You know, the guy had powder burn supposedly on his hand, and Bill got that guy acquitted. Um, so it was obviously an incredible lawyer, but people were pretty mad at that, you know, very angry about what happened with, with Nasser. <laughs>
4: The Egyptian is found guilty only of a minor weapons charge.
6: On December 7, 1991, El sayed was acquitted of killing Rabbi Marikahana, a convicted of firearms offense connected with the shooting of two witnesses during his attempt to flee. The judge will declare that the acquittal verdict defies reason and sentences Nocer to 22 years by applying maximum sentences to his convictions on the other charges. The Egyptian loyalists saw this as a clear victory against the Crusaders and Zionist enemies. However, now will come plans to extract revenge upon the country which allowed Nocer to seemingly get away with murder. The prosecution of Nasser was bobbled by the US government's absolute refusal to acknowledge the possibility that the murder was anything but the work of a lone deranged government, despite information gained during the course of the investigation provided by an FBI operative, Imad Salem. They had very close ties to the radical Imam Sheikh Omel de Rahman. Many boxes of evidence that could have sealed Nasser's guilt on the murder charge and also shows clear evidence of a larger conspiracy when not allowed as evidence. The question is, why? Why was there no further investigation into the fact that there was a larger Arab conspiracy? On the eve of the acquittal, District Attorney Robert Mogenthal, who prosecuted the case, will later speculate that the CIA may have encouraged the FBI not to pursue any other leads. Nasser worked at the al kipa Refugee Center, which was closely tied to a CIA covert operation in Afghanistan. It was also heavily rumored that even the blind Sheikh himself was heavily involved with the CIA and Pakistan ISI in their efforts to defeat the Soviets in Afghanistan and suddenly became famous for traveling all over the world for five years, recruiting new fighters for the Afghan war which was why he was given approval for his U.S. visa while on the terrorist watch list. In February of 1992, Louis Napoli and John Antiseb had identified El Said Nosser as a member of the Gamma Islamiyah, the same group led by the blind sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman in Egypt, which meant that the New York Police Department lone gunman assessment was dead wrong and that the FBI whose files were numerous regarding Nusair connected these dots years back. This was no single perpetrator. This was a network made up of Arab fundamentalists, which extended beyond the borders of America. Louis Napoli would be quoted as, there was a cell structure here, and the other individuals, Abulima and Salome, were part of that cell structure. It was obvious that there was a lot more people involved with the Kahani bullshit than the police department said. We felt there was a lot more, and we started to investigate that. The results of the trial were quite illuminating to the FBI and Salem's handler, Nancy Floyd. From Peter Lance's article, quote, Salem, the man who risked his life for America, end quote, in the New York Times, quote, the stunning lone gunman miscalculation and the screw-ups over the evidence seized from Nocer's house had left the feds reeling. The FBI retrieved the 40-odd boxes from the 17th precinct and the current U.S. Attorney Otto Obermeyer, fledged to review requests by Jewish leaders that the Justice Department bring a civil rights charge against Nocer in the rabbi's murder. Given the evidence problems, though any prosecution would be problematic. At this point, in February of 1992, Napoli and Anticep had identified Nosera as a member of al Gama Islamiyah, the radical Egyptian hate group which the Blind Sheikh led. There was a cell structure here, and the other individuals were part of that cell structure, like Napoli said, end quote. Kay Woods, an assistant fire department New York commissioner, decided to empty out a series of filing cabinets left over from an FDNY unit that had once used the office as a storage space. Woods office went undergoing renovations, and they needed room. The filing cabinets had old records and plans which surely held no value. She decided to throw them out when she rented dumpsters to hold the contents and the garbage in. Two days later, as Woods was returning from lunch, she saw an employer rifling through the dumpster as if she would witness a homeless man looking for any remnants of what looked like food. However, it was an employee. His name was Ahmed Rafai. Rafai, another Egyptian by the way, emigrated to the United States in 1970. He was an employer who worked at the capital budget unit of the New York City Fire Department where his boss was none other than Kay Woods. Incredulous at the sight, Woods asked what Rafai was doing. He said he was looking for old artifacts to keep as memorabilia and also asked if it was permissible. To which Woods approved due to the simple fact that it was indeed garbage after all. Rafai smiled and then put his head down, grabbed the contents he put on the side, jumped off the receptacle and walked off. What he took was seemingly innocent enough, but strange nonetheless, as they were the detailed drawings and blueprints of the bridges and tunnels around Manhattan, and the eight-square-block Port Authority complex between West and Liberty Streets, the World Trade Center. Oh, did I forget to tell you, Rafai was also a bodyguard for the blind Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman as well, but nobody knew this, not until many years later. Salem would become Rachman's chauffeur, and by the spring of 1992, driving him to locations such as Oklahoma, Indianapolis, and Detroit. In one instance, the blind shape was planning to attend an Islamic conference in Detroit. Salem offered to supply his five-passenger Pontiac for the trip. During the course of the ride, Salem played music, but to Rachman, this was haram. Forbidden. Salem apologized and played cassette recordings of the Quran. During the ride back, Rahman requested Salem sit next to him. He was interested in Salem's military background. He wanted to know if Salem had any experience with explosives. He responded that he did. Rahman even told Salem if he had a chance to kill the Egyptian president Hosni-Bubarak, he should do so. This terrified Salem. Priyanad not only gauged at the power and influence Rahman possessed, which translated to his loyal inner circle, who were obviously willing to even die as a martyr for the radical cleric, if requested to do so. But Salem just simply could not wait to tell his superiors, like Louis Napoli and John Antisem, over the blind-shaped fakwa, on Mubarak and his interest regarding explosives. However, neither of the men would make consistent contact with their invaluable informant. This would lead Salem to quietly complain to his original handler, Nancy Floyd, a problem that would later have fatal consequences. One evening, Salem would act as Rahman's personal bodyguard during a sermon at the Masjid al Salam in Jersey City, New Jersey. During his talk, Rahman drew a fiery dictum, which caused Salem to become quite afraid. He ran to a public telephone and tried to reach Detective Napoli, but once again, he failed to answer this persistent call. Salem called Floyd next, and as always, Floyd was working a case late at her desk. When she answered the phone, Salem exclaimed, this man is rabid. He went on to say that Rahman and the participants are planning something big. Floyd wasn't ready for what she heard next. Salem had recorded part of the sermon, in which he held the cassette recorder close to the phone's receiver and hit the play button. The voice was Rahman, with Salem translating from the Arabic. Rachman said, quote, hit hard and kill the enemies of God in every spot to rid of it the descendants of apes and pigs fed at the tables of Zionism, communism, and imperialism, End quote. Floyd asked Salem what he thought they would be planning. Although Salem was a bodyguard to Rachman, He was not involved in the planning circles just yet. He said that Ibrahim El Gabroni had invited him to his house for dinner while turning up the TV thinking maybe the FBI was bugging him. El Gabroni would ask Salem, can you build big bombs? Salem responded, yes, I can. Gabroni asked, when can you give them? And Salem responded, What do you need to build big bombs? Because the 12 bombs are not really making me happy. El Gabroni wanted something big, very big. Salem responded, I need a detonator. And then El Gabroni gave him some diamonds. And also, he gave him other plans and demands. So they switched gears from 12 small pipe bombs into a big, massive bomb sembler to the Oklahoma City bombing of the federal building. Salem simply didn't trust anyone at this point, not Rahman, not Nocer, and not even Napoli or Antisev, thinking that the diamonds and other cash would be to keep Salem's silence from getting out. Salem would then drive Rahman to Attica State Prison, located just a few miles east of Buffalo, New York. However, in July of 1992, Nocer called on Salem to personally meet him. He had important messages just for him. When he reached the visiting room, Salem noticed it had a plexiglass partition with phones between the prisoner and the visitor. Nocer met Salem with a nod and a smirk. Salem picked up the phone. Noser followed suit. According to Salem, who later testified in the trial of Omar Rahman for the landmarks bombing plot, Nosser had mentioned that there was an Iranian agreement with the United States to trade hostages and that he wanted to contact the proper authorities and be switched with an American hostage in Iran. If that didn't work, he was to contact his cousin. Ibrahim El-Gabroni, and start building bombs to use on Jewish neighborhoods and those who jailed them, including Manhattan Supreme Judge Alvin Schlesinger, who presided over Nosair's 1991 trial for the murder of Rabbi Americana and the New York State Assemblyman attempted murder of Dav Hikind. Also, Nosair wanted to bomb 12 areas of the city, landmarks and office buildings, bridges, and whatever they could to maximize fear and carnage. Salem could not believe what he was hearing. After the drive back, El Gabroni pressured Salem about building the small bombs needed for this operation, bombing New York City plots, Jewish neighborhoods, and other things. Salem would report back to El Gabroni from time to time, saying to him, I bought the fuse. I bought the timer. And got the M-80s. Salem would report all this to the FBI, who gave Salem the items needed, but some were defective. Salem said El Gabroni was very unhappy with the timers and told him that a remote would be better since it could control switch from a distance. From Christopher King's, a UPI news article dated March 15, 1995, quote, Salem also testified about another conversation he had about bombs with one of the other defendants in the case, Clement Rodney Hampton L., which took place at the Abu Bakr Mosque in Brooklyn. Hampton L. was known as Dr. Rashid. is accused of supplying technical expertise, firearms, and explosives to the group. I have a timer. We're looking for some more things to complete this project. Salem told Hampton L. According to Salem, Hampton L. told him, don't jeopardize yourself when we can get ready-made bombs. It's available from $800 to $1,000 apiece. On the subject of firearms, Salem said he was told by the defendant, I am out of pistols for the time being. But Hampton L. did mention he had rifles and Uzi machine guns. End quote. Carson Dunbar, an ex-New York Jersey state trooper who had just become the head of the Joint Terrorism Task Force out of New York City, didn't find Nancy Floyd's confidential source, he met Salem, too valuable for the FBI. Salem didn't want to wear a wire, nor did he want to testify. And Dunbar didn't like the fact that Floyd held Salem too close to share with the FBI as well. Rumors spread. Even the city's publishers, such as the New York Post, who saw fit to charge Floyd as having an intimate relationship with Salem. These charges would go unfounded, of course. The pressure was on both of them. And in an article written by Peter Lance, dated September 1, 2010, entitled First Blood, Dunbar had much to say about the Salem relationship with the FBI. Quote, Despite risking his life for the FBI for months and furnishing invaluable intel, Salem was mistrusted by Dunbar, who insisted that he wear a wire. Given that he was sleeping on the floors of the mosques and could easily have his cover blown if taping equipment was discovered, Salem was forced to remove himself from Abdel Rahman's cell. Years later, when I interviewed him, Dunbar insisted that Salem was a prolific liar and an informant who was out of control. But Corrigan underscored the significance of Salem's removal from the cell. The withdrawal of Imad really hurt us a lot, Corrigan told me in an interview with him for Triple Cross. It was also a move that left the nest of vipers around Abdel Rahman without a bomb maker, end quote. Salam and Ali Shinawi agreed to find a warehouse where they can build the bombs. Salem tells all of this to his FBI handlers, Louis Napoli and John Antiselle. But their boss, Carson Dunbar, insists that Salem has to wear a wire so they can record conversations in order to get the evidence to make a convincing court case against the plotters. But Salem, who is only being paid $500 a week to inform for the FBI, refuses to wear a wire, saying it's far too dangerous for him and his family in Egypt. A heated exchange immediately started between Salem and Dunbar, with the latter telling Salem to get the hell out of his office. The FBI had been able to corroborate much of Salem's information through their own surveillance, such as the monitoring of El Sayed Nocer's phone calls from prison. But even though Salem is easily the FBI's best source of information on Abdul Rahman's group, the FBI terminates Salem in early July of 1991 as a confidential top source. Salem will go back to the Al Mosque with fictitious news that he thinks the FBI is tailing him. Abulima tells Salem to hunker down and stay away from Rahman. Salem's made up excuse worked. He was free. There was now a need to replace Salem, who was the alleged bomb maker. Nancy Floyd, now working the Special Operations Group for Undercover Work, along with Ray Polonowski, a fellow agent, met with Imad Salem at a Subway's restaurant on October 14, 1992. She handed Salem a final envelope of cash. Nancy, just simply wanted to thank him for what he had done for her and the agents who were working the case. Salem got up to leave while putting the envelope in his inner pocket. But Salem stopped in his tracks just before he got out the door and turned around and had one final warning for Floyd and Pal Don't call me when the bombs go off. A call was made from the Al-Furuk Mosque to Pakistan, the caller needed to find someone with bomb-making skills. Next thing you know, Ramzi Youssef was on a flight to New York City, along with his associate, Ahmed Ajaj. So who would fill the big shoes Salem wore in regards to monitoring people like Abulima, Salome, or Gabroni? Well John Anticep and Louis Napoli, of course. So why didn't they pull off phone taps on Rahman, Abulima, or the others? Well, according to Frank Gonzalez, a 21-year vet of the U.S. Postal Inspection Service, absolutely nothing at all. Quote, Could they have followed these guys? Absolutely. The FBI unit in charge of domestic terrorism could have proceeded the same way they conduct an organized crime investigation. Such as, you ID the main players, find out through surveillance who their associates are, and you go out and find them. On the basis of Imad Salim's word alone, they could have gotten Title III warrants for pen registers and traps to trace their phone calls. They could have then verified their addresses and sat on them, then followed people like Abulima to see where he went, end quote. As for the excuse John Anderson would later give, that you simply just couldn't monitor someone 24 hours a day, well, in the case of the FBI, yes, you could, especially in 1993 when James Kallstrom, the special agent in charge who had built his legendary reputation in the Bureau by setting up the FBI Special Operations Group and was fully capable of doing so. The FBI simply didn't give the attention Arab fundamentalism should have gotten as opposed to the Italian crime syndicate or La Cosa Nostra have been given. Throughout the mid-1980s, a series of reports described the vulnerability of the World Trade Center to a future terrorist attack. Now, because of the increased risk of terrorism against the United States, due to the U.S. military invasion of Iraq in the first Gulf War on August 2, 1990, the New York Port Authority hires private security company Burns & Row Securicom to prepare a further report and tells them that the World Trade Center is indeed a terrorist target. Unlike previous investigations, Burns & Row Securicom finds that the center's shopping and pedestrian areas rather than the underground parking garage, are the most likely targets. Rick Corla and Dan's Hill report would be shaded in favor of the Burns and Rose Securicom report. The New York Port Authority seeks a second opinion on the OSP's recommendations back in 1985. At a cost of approximately $100,000, it hired the Science of Applications International Corporation, also known as the SAIC, to review the general security of the World Trade Center. The SAIC states in its report that the attractiveness of the World Trade Center's public areas to terrorists is very high. Like the OSP, SAIC pays particular attention to the underground levels of the center and describes a possible attack scenario. Shortly after, Peter Goldmark, who founded, was the executive director of the Port Authority, resigned from his post on September 27, 1984. Three years later, the New York Port Authority's Office of Special Planning, the OSP, is closed down. The reasons for the closure are unknown. On August 31, 1992, Ramzi Youssef and Ahmed Ajaj would leave the country of Pakistan using the services of a local Pakistan travel agent. This travel agent, indeed, made sure that both men, and their passports, which were faulty, got through. They would board Pakistan International Airlines Flight 703 to Karachi, and then on to John F. Kennedy Airport in New York City. They would land inside the United States, landing at JFK Airport on September 1st. Ajaj and Yusuf together had five passports and numerous documents supporting their aliases a Saudi passport showing signs of alteration, and an Iraqi passport bought from a Pakistani official, a photo-substituted Swedish passport, a photo-substituted British passport, a Jordanian passport, identification cards, bank records, education records, and medical records. Interestingly enough, all these records were basically frauds. Passports made in Pakistan for exactly this, and indeed, they would go on to enter the country. And while awaiting at JMK's secondary immigration inspection, Akbar the Judge would produce a crudely made passport in which he would state that he was Swedish. The passport was indeed legitimate, belonging to a Swedish citizen who attended a training camp in Pakistan and surrendered his identity cards to those who ran the camp. But a judge had simply used paste and plaster his own photograph over the legitimate owner. The inspectors noticed it right away and held the judge along with his belongings. While in an Immigration Naturalization Services waiting room, inspectors Mark Cousine and Robert Malfronti would look to a judge's suitcase. In it, they found very damning items, which consisted of the following bomb making manuals and videos and other materials on assembling weapons and explosives assembly, letters referencing his attendance at a terrorist training camp, anti-American and anti-Israel materials, as well as instructions on document forgery and two stamp devices to alter the seal on passports issued from Saudi Arabia. Including one of the manuals was a very interesting document, which was written in 1982. It had the title Al-Qaeda, the base, which would mean that seven years prior to the group's formation, it was used in a context many years before it was even acknowledged as a group. INS immediately called the FBI's Terrorism Task Force and the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Unit. Both agencies declined to get involved in this incident. A judge would be held at a detention center pending his situation in New York courts on what to do with the man. I think it was obvious that they should investigate exactly where he would come from, who he was with, and what training camps he was basically training in. However, Yousef saw what was happening with a judge and produces an Iraqi passport bearing a visa issued by the Pakistani embassy in Baghdad before an INS officer. Yusuf immediately requests for political asylum. He would be held in question by INS for three days. The INS officer who respected Yusuf upon arrival requested that he not enter the country but due to the overcrowding in the detention cells, he was given a future date for court regarding the situation. To Yusuf's surprise, he was free. And although he had little to no money, he managed conveniently to pick up a taxi ride into New Jersey by a Pakistani taxi driver who showed pity to Yusuf's plight. The ride was free of charge. Yusuf would arrive at the Al Farouk Mosque in Brooklyn a short while later. He would sleep in its makeshift rooms on a cot. How convenient. Beginning in November of 1992, Egyptian intelligence repeatedly warns the United States that Sheikh Omnul al-Rahman, principal mosques in the US, the al-Saddam and al Farouk mosques in Brooklyn are hotbeds of terrorist activity and and that Abdul Rahman is plotting a new round of terrorist attacks in Egypt. One Egyptian official would later say, there were many, many contacts between Cairo and Washington, yet no action is taken, and the FBI does not conduct independent investigations into Rahman. Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak would make a remarkable statement to Egyptian press that Omar Abdel Rahman was indeed a CIA asset while in Afghanistan. According to the Washington Post, dated May 29, 1993, it would elaborate further. Quote, the Sheikh had been a CIA agent since his days in Afghanistan. He still earns a salary, Mubarak told newspaper editors, columnists, and intellectuals at a meeting in Cairo on Wednesday. The visa he got was not issued by mistake. It was because of the services he did. The U.S. version is that the embassy in Sudan that issued the Sheikh's visa did not notice the blind cleric's name on a list of undesirables, although it was told eight days earlier by the U.S. embassy in Cairo that he was visiting and should be watched. Mubarak was quoted as saying that the case has also led to a dispute in the United States between the FBI and the CIA. The FBI responsible for domestic security wants Abdul Rahman out of the country. While the CIA wants him to stay, Mubarak was quoted as saying, Mubarak's spokesman could not be contacted for comment today, the eve of a major Muslim holiday, end quote. On November 3rd, 1992, a wire transfer from MoneyGram came through to Mohammed A. Salome from a Qatar account belonging to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. This was the only instance showing Khalid Sheikh Mohammed involved in the planning stages of the operation masterminded by Yusuf and Ahmed Ajaj. The FBI would not catch on to the absolute importance of this until days after the bombing. While also in Pakistan, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed would receive a master's degree in Islamic culture and history through correspondence classes from Punjab University. Knowledge would come at a cost, however. Meanwhile, Osama bin Laden was held under house arrest by Saudi authorities from the General Intelligence Directorate for fear of reprisals from his Arab Mujahideen, who the kingdom had turned down his offer of sending the Afghan Arabs to fight against Saddam Hussein's Ba'athist army after the invasion of Kuwait. Hassan al-Tarabi, leader of the National Islamic Front, an Islamist political organization based in Sudan, sends a delegation and a letter to bin Laden inviting him to collaborate and move to Sudan. Bin Laden agrees to the offer but moves slowly. The invitation is quite enticing. Bin Laden would have to agree with the invitation. Why? He can build his base of operations there. And because of this, Osama bin Laden, could basically open up attacks on the very country that he would wage war on, especially against countries that basically did not believe in his version of Wahhabi Islam. I think that America is a weaker than
7: Russia. ومنما بلغنا من أخبار إخواننا الذين جاهدوا في الصومال وجدوا العجب العجاب من ضعف الجندي الأمريكي ومن هزالة الجندي الأمريكي ومن جبن الجندي الأمريكي ما قتل منهم إلا ثمانون فروا في ليل أظلم لا يلوون على شيء بعد ضجيج ملأ الدنيا عن النظام العالمي
6: He sends advanced teams to buy businesses and houses. He also visited Sudan himself to establish a relationship with Al-Turabi and the president, Omar al-Bashir. Gradually, about 1,000 bin Laden supporters moved to the Sudan from Afghanistan. But bin Laden also keeps offices and guest houses in Pakistan, as well as training camps in Afghanistan, including Darunta, Jihadwal, Kaldin, Sadiq, al fadouk and the Khalid Ibn Walid camps. U.S. Al-Qaeda double agent Ali Muhammad would play an important role in the move. Bin Laden would move Muhammad and Abu Abed al-Banshiri, the former Egyptian police officer, now training for military commissions of Al-Qaeda, to train the Arabs from the al-Masada training camp, which would later be called Al-Qaeda, while operating training camps in Khartoum. Abu Abaydah al-Banshiri's brother had participated in the assassination of Egyptian President Anwar al-Sadat in 1980. Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri, head of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, introduced al-Banshiri to Osama bin Laden, who was so favorably impressed that he made al-Banshiri military commander of the Afghan Arabs. Al-Banshiri's second-in-command was another famous Egyptian officer, Abu Hafs al-Masri, who would also be known as Muhammad Atef later on. He would purchase a house on Al-Mashtal Street in the affluent Al-Riyadh quarter and a retreat at Soba on the Blue Nile. During his his time in Sudan, he heavily invested in its infrastructure in agriculture and businesses. He was the Sudan agent for the British from hunting services and built roads using the same bulldozers he had employed to construct mountain trucks in Afghanistan. Many of his laborers were the same fighters who had been his comrades in the war against the Soviets. He was generous to the poor and popular with the people. He continued to criticize King Fahd of Saudi Arabia. And in response, in 1990, Fahd, 1994, Fahad stripped bin Laden of his Saudi citizenship and persuaded his family to cut off his $7 million a year stipend. The CIA, meanwhile, were watching bin Laden's every move while living in Khartoum, and began conducting surveillance. Bin Laden would employ Wadi al-Hajj as a personal accountant in Khartoum, giving him an apartment and a stipend in return. Although he was born in Lebanon, al-Hajj was a naturalized American citizen who married 18-year-old April Ray, an American citizen who had recently converted to Islam, gaining American citizenship in 1989. El Hajj was not doing well financially and re- relocated to Quetta, Pakistan, but returned to run the Al Keeper Refugee Center in Brooklyn after the death of Mustafa Shalabi. While running the Al Keeper Refugee Center, El Hajj became acquainted with members such as Mahmoud Abulima and Adel Ayad. Ali Muhammad, who became an informant for the FBI in 1990, apparently works as an FBI informant once again obtaining intelligence on some suspects at a Sandy San Jose mosque in 1992. FBI agent John Zent becomes Muhammad's handler, but he is never polygraphed, even though this is the standard procedure. Retired FBI agent Joe O'Brien would later complain, quote, one of the most unbelievable aspects of the Ali, Mahaj, Ali Muhammad story is that the Bureau could be dealing with this guy and they didn't polygraph him. The first thing you do with any kind of asset or informant is you polygraph him, and if the relationship continues, you make him submit to continued polygraphs down the line, end quote. Bin Laden stood a busy man while in Khartoum. His operations there made him rather popular with the country of Sudan. As he rebuilt the infrastructure to the tune of over $30 million, he operated several terrorist camps behind the scenes. Ali Soufan, a former FBI New York City field office agent who once worked under the legendary John O'Neill, would write about these operations in his book *The Black Banners*. According to Chapter Two, Osama Air, quote: "In late 1992, once the basic network was set up, Bin Laden and other Al Qaeda leaders plotted where they would might begin striking U.S. targets. They settled on the Horn of Africa." American troops were in Somalia as part of Operation Restore Hope, an international United Nations-sanctioned humanitarian and famine relief mission in the south of the country, which the United States had begun leading in December of 1992. Abu Hafs al-Masri was sent to Somalia to evaluate precisely what the United States was doing in Somalia. In the resulting report, he termed the U.S. presence an invasion of Muslim lands but conceded that because of the different tribal groups in the country, it would be tough for Al Qaeda to operate there. Based upon Abu Hafs al Masli's report, Al Qaeda leaders issued a fatwa demanding that the United States leave Somalia. Al Qaeda trainers were on the ground during the Battle of Mogadishu, also known as Black Hawk Down, between October 3rd and 4th, 1993, when two U.S. Black Hawk helicopters. Was shot down during an operation. After a chaotic rescue mission, and after 18 Americans and more than 1,000 Somali fighters were killed, the world saw the lifeless bodies of American soldiers being dragged through the streets, and President Clinton soon afterward ordered US troops to withdraw from Somalia. Bin Laden celebrated the withdrawal as a major victory and often told his followers that this episode showed how America was weak and how al-Qaeda could beat the superpower by inflicting pain, end quote. Again, from Ali Sufan's Black Banners in Chapter 2, Osama Air, Wadi al-Hajj stood working on trying to get Bin Laden an airplane from a person living in Texas who is quite familiar with al-Hajj, Asim al-Hidi. Quote, So what can I do for Abu Abdallah? also known as Osama bin Laden, Rafidi continued, referring to bin Laden by his alias. Abdallah is the name of bin Laden's eldest son and referred to him that this was an expression of respect as it's considered a great honor in the Muslim world to have a son. He wants you to buy an airplane for him, El hajj explained. He explained that bin Laden had asked for the plane he delivered to Khartoum International Airport, end quote. Meanwhile, Ramzi Youssef began assembling a team that would assist him in making a bomb that would be used on the World Trade Center North Tower. This would only be known between Yusuf and Abdul Rahman. The following quote is from the book Toxic Terror, Assessing Terrorist Use of Chemical and Biological Weapons by Jonathan B. Tucker in Chapter 11, The World Trade Center Bombers by John V. Paracini. Quote, the only evidence suggesting that the Twin Towers were selected for this symbolic value comes from a notebook of Rabbi Meriah Kahana's assassin, El-Sayed Nosser. In his papers, he argued for the need to demoralize the enemies of Allah by destroying and blowing up the pillars of their civilization and blowing up the tourist attractions they are so proud of and the high-rise buildings they are also so proud of. Obviously, the World Trade Center comes to mind as one of the tourist attractions and high buildings in New York City. But the same would apply to the Empire State Building or the Chrysler Building, end quote. The group consisted of members of the Alfred Mosque who were trained under the CIA Operation Cyclo Program in the 1980s. People such as Muhammad A. Salome, Mahmoud Abulima, Nadel Ayad, Iyad Esmoil. Abdul Rahman Yassin and Ahmed Ajaj. Ayad and Salome opened a joint bank account into which they deposited funds to finance the bombing plot. Some of that money was later used by Salome to rent a storage shed in Jersey City, New Jersey, where the conspirators stored chemicals for making explosives. Youssef also drew on that account to pay for materials described in Ahmed Ajaj's manuals. As ingredients for bomb making. Youssef would continue to remain in contact with a judge even though he was incarcerated. A judge never contacted Youssef directly. Calls were patched through Big Five hamburgers in Dallas from associates a judge knew, as a judge once had residency in Houston, working as a pizza delivery driver while he was living inside the United States after he was released from prison by Israeli authorities, of course. When talking about anything relating to explosives, they used the code word chocolates. They both learned about masking words while talking on the phone at their time at the SADA training camp, to which Yusuf and Ajaj had initially met. According to Terry McDermott's fantastic book, The Hunt for KSM, Inside the Pursuit and Takedown of the Real 9-11 Mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ramzi Youssef and his associate from Pakistan, Abdul Hakim Murad, the plan was still in operation on which weapons or volatile chemicals to use. Quote, Basit finally settled on Murad's suggestion. He had several different ideas of what sort of bomb he could build. He toyed with the idea of building a device that contained cyanide, the idea being that the release of the deadly cast into the World Trade Center's ventilation system would nearly kill all of its occupants. This design proved too devastating and expensive, so he settled on the cheapest sort of bomb he knew how to build, an ordinary fertilizer bomb made with urea, nitrate. He built several small prototypes and drove out to New, York, New Jersey countryside to blow them up. Making chocolate was how he described the process to Murad. Abdul Basit also known as Ramzi Youssef, intended the bomb to topple the North Tower into the South Tower, somehow bringing both of them to the ground. End quote. On October 6, 1992, a judge pled guilty in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of New York to one count of passport fraud. And in an act of sheer ludicrous bewilderment, a judge in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of New York on December 11, 1992 ruled that the government had to return all of Ahmed Adjaj's belongings seized at JFK, including his bomb manuals. Yousef asked the judge that the manuals be sent to him at Pamp Row Avenue apartment. The apartment he was staying in at the time being. This would basically shock many people. And what would happen in the future would have devastating consequences. The problem was that Youssef and Abdul-Hakim Arad were also planning something very big. And later on, when they were captured, much of the news media would become perplexed as to how an operation such as the Pajinka plot would go undiscovered by the FBI.
2: Weeks before allegedly masterminding the World Trade Center explosion, Ramzi Youssef had planned his own escape. He had a new identity, a new passport, and a plane ticket out of town. For nearly two years, he eluded the FBI, traveling first from New York to Pakistan, then Iran, with reported sightings in Balochistan, Afghanistan, the Bakah Valley, then Manila. He was there when the Pope visited last month, and Philippine police came within minutes of arresting him when they discovered a Yusuf-led plot to place explosives on up to five U.S.-flagged aircraft operating in the Far East. Bombs are Yusuf? specialty, terrorist experts say. He
0: is a trained terrorist, trained a bomb. trained above all in explosives, which he knows a great deal about.
2: Born in Kuwait, he's fluent in three languages and teased his pursuers by frequently changing identities and appearance. The manhunt became so intense, the FBI and State Department flooded the Middle East with thousands of these matchbooks written in Arabic offering a $2 million reward for Yusuf's arrest. At first, there weren't any takers. Steve Emerson is writing a book about the government's search for Yusuf. There really was a hopelessness. That he would never be caught never be seen again. But in Islamabad, Pakistan, where terrorists had earlier struck against the U.S. Embassy, an informant turned the alleged bomber in early this week. Ramzi Yusuf was staying in a boarding house. His hair dyed red this time when police kicked in the door. The world's most sought after terrorist went quietly, agents say. They also say he was planning another bombing attack. Jim Stewart, CBS News,
6: Washington.
5: The evidence is on trial.
6: The details involving where Yusuf boarded and contact with the judge would be further explained to the United States Court of Appeals, Second Circuit, United States versus Ramzi Ahmed Yusuf, Bilal Al Qasi, also known as Bilal el-Kisi, Abdul Rahman Yassin, also known as Abud, and the defendants. It's dated August 4, 1998. Quote Abilima helped Salome and Yusuf find a ground floor apartment at 40. Pampereau Avenue in Jersey City. The apartment fit the specifications and a manual for an ideal base of operations. In the 40 Pampereau apartment, Abelima, Salome, Yusef, and Yasin mixed the chemicals for the World Trade Center bomb, following a Jod's formula. Abelina also obtained a telephone calling card, which the conspirators used to contact each other and to call various chemical companies for bomb ingredients. During this entire period, although Ajad remained incarcerated, he kept in telephone contact with Yusef. By doing so, Ajad stayed abreast of the co-conspirators' progress in carrying out the terrorist plot, and attempted to get his terrorist kit into Yusef's hands. Because Ajad was in jail, and his telephone calls were monitored, Ajad and Yusef spoke in code when discussing the bomb plot. I have numerous relatives in Palestine, Yusef said in an interview after his capture. If terrorism means to regain my land and to fight whoever attacks me with my kinsmen, then I have no objection to being called a terrorist. I believe Palestinians are entitled to strike U.S. targets because the United States finances crimes committed in Palestine. This money is taken from taxes paid by Americans. This makes the American people responsible for all the crimes in which the Palestinian people are subjected to. It is no excuse that the American people do not know where the federal tax money goes, end quote. Mohamed A. Salome entered the United States on a six-month tourist visa in 1988 and never reapplied when it expired. He was born in the West Bank in 1967 and immigrated to New Jersey. Salome owned a 1978 Chevy Nova, which was used to ferry the nitric acid and urea used to construct the bomb that Yusuf ordered. Incidentally, Salome was quite a poor driver. So poor, that on January 24, 1993, he jumped a curb and tore the undercarriage from his car, injuring himself and Ramzi Youssef. He was checked out of Rahway Hospital the following day and went to the garage to clean his car, while Youssef remained in the hospital for four more days. On December 30, 1992, Mohammed Salome appeared at a space station, a storage warehouse in New Jersey City, using the name Kamal Ibrahim. He told the attentive employee behind the desk that he and some friends were starting a company and needed to rent a locker. Salameh was given a contract to sign, and payments were paid monthly. Almost immediately, Yusuf was assisted by Iraqi bomb maker Abdul Rahman Yassin, who helped assemble the bomb. Yusuf would begin to order the ingredients, such as the urea nitrate main charge with aluminum, magnesium, and ferric oxide. They would be stored at a space station locker. This is where all the bomb making would be held in. This locker in Jersey City. And it would show that the co-conspirators were all involved in the bomb making plot. What they didn't know was that what target the bomb would be used. According to an article by the Federation of American Scientists dated January 12th, 2009. The bombs charged used nitroglycerin, ammonium nitrate dynamite, smokeless powder, and a fuse as booster explosives. Three tanks of bottled hydrogen were also placed in a circular configuration around the main charge to enhance the fireball and afterburn of the solid medical particles. Yusef wanted to build the bomb in similar fashion to the bomb characteristics of the 1983 Beirut Barracks bombing. The details of the bomb were laid out in full in the Senate Judiciary Committee Subcommittee on Technology, Terrorism, and Government Information hearing held on February 24, 1998. In all, the conspirators ordered and had delivered to the shed a total of enhanced the bomb's 1,500 pounds of urea and approximately 1,672 pounds of nitric acid. They used 1,200 pounds of urea and almost all of the nitric acid to make the World Trade Center bomb. In December of 1992, when the conspirators were acquiring, were acquiring urea and nitric acid for the bomb's main charge of urea nitrate and looking for chemicals to make boosters and detonators in the mariner specified in a judge's manual, Yousef began to reach out for a judge. Beginning on December 4th, 1992, a few days after Yusuf ordered the first shipment from City Chemical, Yusuf placed a series of calls to a judge's lawyer in New York and to a judge's friend in Texas. On December 29, 1992, after Salome and Yusuf had spent two days calling a myriad of chemical companies looking for chemicals to make boosters, Yusuf once again reached out for a judge. The day after Salome obtained the right event to house the bomb, Ayad contacted AGL AGL Welding and ordered three tanks of standard hydrogen to enhance the power of the bomb. Ayad requested that the hydrogen be delivered to the storage shed and said that he would be returning the tanks. The next day, February 25, 1993, AGL Welding delivered the three hydrogen tanks ordered by Ayad. The previous day. Salome accepted the delivery. The AGL truck driver tried to bring the tanks into the storage facility but was stopped by an employee who initially would not allow the tanks inside the facility because of their potential to explode. Only when Salome advised that a van was coming to pick up the hydrogen tanks within minutes did the employee permit the tanks to be brought into the facility. A short while later, Salome helped load the hydrogen tanks into the Ryder van he had rented on February 23rd and then left the storage facility, end quote. This would bring about many problems, many problems for New York City. But what did they know? Nobody knew what was coming, except for Yusuf and Rahman.
1: To this
0: point, did they ever ask you if you were involved in any way? No, they never once asked any question about whether you took part in this in any way.
1: No, all the talking was on Ramzi Youssef and Mohammed Salameh.
0: Yassin reinforced the impression he was cooperating by voluntarily returning the next day and showing the FBI this apartment in Jersey City where the bomb was made. But the FBI agent didn't have a search warrant.
1: He told me he could not go in because he didn't have a warrant. Your work with us is finished. And so he drove me back.
6: He drove you back home?
0: He
1: drove me back.
6: Where was Ali Muhammad in all of this? Surely he would have been quite helpful making the bomb along with Yusuf. Muhammad actually had other plans, like fighting against the Rabani government in Afghanistan. So he returned. Even though the Soviets had been defeated out of the country in what was now embroiled in a civil war between the Taliban and the Afghan Northern Alliance, Ali Muhammad would train rebel commanders in military tactics. U.S. Prosecutor Patrick Fitzgerald would later say of Muhammad's visit to Afghanistan, quote, Muhammad did not make a loyalty pledge to al-Qaeda, but he trained most of al-Qaeda's top leadership, including bin Laden and Dr. Ayman al zawahiri most of al-Qaeda's top trainers. Muhammad taught surveillance, counter-surveillance, assassinations, kidnappings, codes, ciphers, and other intelligent techniques, as well as hijacking planes, end quote. Mohammed was also traveling through Italy at some point during this excursion. And according to a New York Times report dated December 1st, 1998, quote, at the same time, the US officials said a series of bizarre incidents brought him to the attention of the FBI. In 1992, Ali Mohammed was detained by authorities at the Rome airport, whose suspicions were piqued by his luggage, which had false compartments. He assured interrogators that he was on the side in the war on terrorism and claimed he was involved in security for the Summer Olympics in Spain, officials said, and quote. Mohammed will regularly return to Afghanistan in years to come, as part of at least 58 trips overseas leaving from the United States. And in a Wall Street Journal article dated November 26, 2001, Nabil Sharif, a university professor and former Egyptian intelligence officer, had this to say about the CIA handling of Ali Muhammad. Quote, For five years, he was moving back and forth between the United States and Afghanistan. It's impossible. The CIA thought he was going there to serve as a tourist. If the CIA hadn't caught on to him, it should be dissolved and its budget used for something worthwhile, end quote. Those involved with Yousef knew him by an alias, Rashid. However, when purchasing items from Yousef, he used the alias Kamal Ibrahim and paid $3,615 in cash for 1,000 pounds of urea from City Chemical in Jersey City. The chemicals were delivered to Kamal and company at the storage locker, along with 105 gallons of nitric acid and 60 gallons of sulfuric acid. have specified that the nitrogen content of the urea crystals be high, 46.6%. The sulfuric acid had to be at least 93% fewer. According to Frederick Whitehurst, the FBI's lab whistleblower testifying at the World Trade Center bombing trial on August 14, 1995, quote, according to testimony in the bomb trial, only once before the 1993 attack had the FBI recorded a bomb that used urea nitrate. Moreover, Whitehurst was strongly critical of the procedures used to determine that the bomb contained urea nitrate. According to his testimony, he reiterated that he urinated in a vial, dried the urine, and gave a sample of it to the the analysts, who still concluded that the substance handed to them was urea nitrate. He concluded that there was no scientific basis for the government's public claim that a urea nitrate bomb had been the source of the explosion when he refused to recant or to doctor his reports to support the urea nitrate bomb theory, the FBI used an unqualified lab technician to testify that the so-called urea nitrate found at the scene was consistent with the urea nitrate bomb, end quote. Salame would use his terrible driving skills sharpening around a woman named Josie Hadas, who also lived at 34 Kensington Avenue, apartment four, in Jersey City, New Jersey. Salome talked to her and taking her to stores, helping her around the neighborhood. Not much is known who Josie Hadass actually was. Nevertheless, Salome seemed to be dependent upon, for all the wrong reasons, Hadas was also Salome's landlord and gave Salome jobs to do on the side to help pay for the rent. The Israeli woman, also rented the apartment just before Christmas Day in 1992, and she had had allowed Salome to live there while she collected his month's rent. How did this relationship start? Quite strange. It was during his or her occupancy of this apartment that the chemicals and bomb components were supposedly stored there. By mid-February of 1993, Nadel Ayad wanted to do a reconnaissance mission on the target he was told by Ramzi Youssef, the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Ayad drove with Mohammed Salome as his passenger. He left the car in the Twin Towers garage and sketched a floor plan. Noticing that the Port Authority vans that serviced the World Trade Center were yellow, Ayad was a key figure in the creation of the urea nitrate device. He also suspected that they use a yellow rider van, which would mimic that of the yellow trucks served by the Port Authority. He used his position as an engineer at Allied Signal, a large New Jersey chemical company, to order necessary chemical ingredients for bomb-making and to order hydrogen tanks from ALG welding company that would enhance the bomb's destructive force. Nadali Ayad was born in 1968 in Kuwait to Palestinian parents, after they had fled Palestine due to the Six Day War. He moved to the United States in 1965 and began studies in chemical and biochemical engineering at Rutgers in 1985 and became a naturalized U.S. citizen in 1981. 1991. He also worked at Allied Signal, an engineering company where he received well pay. What drove Ayad to participate in this act of sheer madness, saying he was the most educated of all the participants. In Peter Lance's book, A Thousand Years for Revenge, had the FBI properly monitored the Al Farouk cell, the operations would have been watched by the FBI and the New York Joint Terrorism Task Force, and the members duly arrested at the warrants were given by a presiding judge. It was just that simple. As the book cites, quote, Yousef also made regular trips to Locker 4334 at the space station, where the chemicals were stored, and the telephonic trail he left was riddled with clues. He was repeatedly seen by witnesses using a payphone outside the Pamparo Avenue Apartment 10. He made more than $18,000 worth of phone calls from the bomb factory to contacts in the Middle East, Pakistan, Turkey, and Yugoslavia. Further, if the feds had installed a trap to monitor Abulima's calls, they would have discovered at least eight from Pampero Avenue and four on February 3rd, 1993 from the Trade Center itself. Ramzi Yusuf was a bold during this period, and he even allowed himself to be captured by an ATM camera, withdrawing funds from a phone call using another person's phone card. In one of the Comic ironies of the story. After Yusuf's flight to Pakistan following his bombing, his parents were reportedly harassed by phone company representatives looking to collect on the exorbitant phone bills that he owed. Once the name yusuf surfaced in the press alongside his original name, Abdul Basit. The daunting and dunning noses went out. The phone company managed to locate yusuf's parents. Why couldn't the FBI? End quote. Tuesday, February 23rd, 1993, an Arab male with a slight build and trim beard walked through the door of the Ryder Truck Rental in Jersey City, New Jersey. He used his own name on the application, Mohammed A. Salome, and cash for a one-week rental service by paying $20 up front, along with a $200 deposit. He used his driver's license that listed a New Jersey address and gave them a phone number Patrick Galasso, the rider office manager who helped Salome along the way, along with the rental agreement, agreed to the terms. The 2,000-pound truck, which would hold up to a two-bedroom apartment, had the license plate, Alabama license plate XA70668. Salome was given the keys and, in a short nod, walked out and drove off the lot with the rental truck. According to investigators, Salome rented the van to haul some of material for Josie Hadas. yet it has remained unreported his point of pickup and his destination. What is also quite strange and unbeknownst at the time to anyone that was, Salome used the phone number of Josie Hadas. According to the docuseries film by Nelson Martins, also known as DJ Thermodetonator, Detonator, The Hidden Path to 9-11, World Trade Center Bombing of 1993, Yusuf and members of the Al-Majib Mosque in New Jersey City were not featured enough, as opposed to those of the Al-Farouq, because of the simple fact of Omar al-Rahman preaching more at this mosque than in Jersey City, than at the Al-Farouq, which is more of a base for recruiting and training with the likes of Ali Muhammad. With Muhammad now in Afghanistan, Yusuf in Jersey City, and living at 40 Paparrow Avenue in Jersey City, and Abulima, Ayad, Yassin, and Salome, at the apartment or at space storage, Rachman started disting himself from the participants. So the question becomes the following, ladies and gentlemen. Where were the good guys? The FBI and the New York Police Department, who were supposed to pick up the slack and monitor the already suspicious crowd from the Al-Fadouk and Masjid Al-Salam mosques that Imad Salim was monitoring? Abulima and Salome specifically? well, once again, Peter Lance's book, 1,000 Years for a Wrench, where Peter Lance had actually interviewed Detective Louis Napoli, offering an unsettling explanation. Quote, The FBI couldn't locate Mahmoud Abulima because he'd gone to New Jersey. Abulima beat feet on us. We were trying to locate him, but he went to Jersey. Salome was in Jersey. You've got to remember, their boundaries. The Hudson River separates New York and New Jersey. To work on Abulima and Salome, I would have to work through the FBI office in Newark. The task force is a New York Terror task force. Our boundaries are only in New York. End quote. Peter Lance had an FBI source who did not want to be identified tell him otherwise from the book. Quote, What Napoli said would be totally false, said the source. I worked numerous cases out of the New York field office, where the subjects lived in New Jersey. The idea that they couldn't have filed Abilema across state lines or needed to get permission is ridiculous. So if it wasn't a question of jurisdiction and the FBI had the technical know-how to mount surveillance, how the hell did they blow it? There were supervisors in the New York office who had come from this arrogant point of view that nobody was ever going to attack the United States, to them, these Muslims were not a threat. They were a Bedouin people running around the desert with no education. And we were the big, bad USA, smart and intelligent, and they weren't, end quote. Julian Stackhouse, an agent in the New York office at the time, suggested that Carson Dunbar, The assistant special agent in charge who had proved the deployment of surveillance resources for the special operations group also deserved some blame. For it was Dunbar's job to sanction the monitoring of suspects like Abulima and Salome in the first place. Terry McDermott wrote in The New Yorker on September 13, 2010, that Ramzi Yusuf didn't waste time in regards to concocting terrorist plans, much like his uncle Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, even as early as 1988. Quote, they had spent time together in Peshawar, Pakistan, where Basid had visited in 1988 on a break from studying electrical engineering in Wales. He returned in 1991 and trained at Khaldin camp in Afghanistan. He also taught courses in bomb making and developed a reputation as a clever designer of explosive devices. The Arab Mujahideen had argued that the future of their cause debating whether it should be confronted in Afghanistan until they prevailed there or broadened to confront corrupt Arab regimes elsewhere. Abdul Basit didn't waste time on debates. He began making plans and proselytizing. One of his cousins later told investigations investigators that during this period, Basit inspired him to join the jihad against Afghanistan. Basit and Muhammad both frequently appealed to relatives logistical support. Two of Basit's cousins and at least two of his brothers have been accused of working with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. In 1991, Basit got in touch with Abdul-Hakim Murad, a fellow Baluchi, and a boyhood friend of Kuwait, who was then in the United States training as a pilot. Basit told him that he wanted to attack Israel but thought it would be too difficult. He would attack the United States instead. He asked Murad to suggest potential Jewish targets in the United States, and Murad agreed to think about it. After Murad finished his training and returned to the Gulf in 1992, but got in touch with him again and asked if he had identified the target, end quote. During the late evening hours of February 25th, a call was made from a payphone located near the Pathmark store on Route 440 to the Jersey City Police Department concerning that a rider truck was stolen. The desk officer asked who it belonged to, the person said, Muhammad A. Salome. In minutes, the police showed up and took Salome in for paperwork. Hours after the encounter with police. A call was made to the men involved with the plot, Mahmoud Abelima, Iyad Ismoil, Muhammad A. Salome, and Ramzi Youssef. It was the midnight hour, and the air was rather crisp, with temps down below freezing. As they loaded the elements of the bomb into the rider truck for the trip into Manhattan, which was just a mere seven hours away, Ground zero for the worst terrorist attack since Pearl Harbor was almost upon the sleeping souls of the city of New York. February 26, nineteen ninety three. At approximately three thirty-one AM, the large rented rider truck turned slowly on the deserted streets of New Jersey City, just across the Hudson River from the bright lights of downtown Manhattan. The first stop, the Shell Petrol station at the junction. Between Route 440. Two other cars pulled up right behind the truck a dark blue Lincoln and a red Chevrolet following closely behind. Prosecutors were later state in court that defendant Makbu Abulima was in the blue sedan and Mohamed Salome and Ramzi Youssef were in the bomb laden van. Willie Hernandez Moush was working in New Jersey City, New Jersey gas station when he came out and told to fill up the rider truck and the dark blue Lincoln. Their next destination would be a Midtown Hotel where Iyad Ismoil, a young Jordanian who studied engineering at Wichita State, was temporarily staying at. According to Simon Reeves' book, The New Jackals, Rams the use of Osama bin Laden and the future of terrorism, in Chapter 1, The Twin Towers, they picked up Iyad Ismoil to drive the bomb-laden by the truck van. Quote, By 8 a.m., the van was nosing through the New Jersey, New New York rush hour towards lower Manhattan. With Yusef giving directions, the van arrived at a hotel in midtown Manhattan where an old friend of his called Iyad Esmoil, a baby-faced Jordanian college student, was staying for a few days. They were knocking on the door at 9 a.m. and saying, hurry up, we're going to be late. I took a bath and went with them, said Esmoil, and asked me to drive. He said, You are a taxi driver and a driving expert in the street. I laughed and told him I was willing to drive. Ismoil climbed behind the wheel of the van, and the group drove towards southern Manhattan. In the middle of a major street, we stopped at traffic light. Yusuf said, go to the right from here, in the direction of an underground tunnel, said Ismoil. I did, and we went down underground. I was surprised, he said, park here. End quote. With Ismail now driving the van, the next stop was the North Tower of the World Trade Center. The convoy passed through the Holland Tunnel, once in Manhattan, and turned down West Street and took the Battery Tunnel to the Harbor Motel Inn in Brooklyn. There was a slight change in plans, however. The truck was to be in the parking garage of the North Tower at Level 3 just after 9 a.m. Youssef asserted that this was when thousands of, were just getting ready to start the work day. But Yusef overslept, and Salome had not awakened him in time. Below the World Trade Center were seven stories of underground garages and offices. Peter Lance would later describe the basement levels as magnificently impressive, stating that the entire World Trade Center complex compr- comprises of seven large, huge buildings, and even the underground basement boasts impressive statistics. A subterranean world of cooling pipes, parking garages, and offices bigger than the Empire State Building, it houses a small army of 300 mechanics, electricians, engineers, and cleaners who keep the towers alive for the daily working and visiting populations of nearly 150,000. Once again, in Simon Reeves' book, The New Jackals, the following people who are working at the B-211 garage of the North Tower had no idea about the incoming rider truck passing them by. Quote: On December 26 of February, Monica Smith was one of those working in a small office on B level, B2 level, in the town, in the town underground. Monica was a pretty dark-haired girl, 35-year-old woman from Ecuador, and a secretary whose main responsibility was scrutinizing timesheets submitted by cleaning contractors. She had met her husband, Eddie, in the World Trade Center when he had gone to the building for a sales meeting, and now she was seven months pregnant with little Eddie, their first child. Her colleagues adored Smith, fussing around her attentively from the moment she announced her pregnancy. Just a few days previously, Stephen Knapp, a 48-year-old maintenance supervisor, had even asked his wife, Louise, to bake Monica a special dish of parmesan. At noon, the room next to Smith's office was being taken over for lunch. A meeting about maintenance services had finished with the arrival of Robert Kirkpatrick, a 61B spectacle chief locksmith for the towers, closely followed by Bill Mako, a 47-year-old maintenance worker. Kilpatrick also sat in the same large oak chair for lunch, and no meeting would get in his way. Macco unfolded a newspaper, pulled out from a knife, from his pocket and began slowly peeling an orange. Stephen Knapp, the next to join the group, cracked open an illicit beer from a refrigerator in the corner of the room and flopped wearily into a chair. Bill Lavin, who worked for the chief maintenance contractor for the Trade Center, eyed his friends, then decided he wanted to see daylight and perhaps catch a glimpse of the snow forecast on the television that morning. The snow was falling lightly outside, dusting Manhattan in white. Lavin told the others he would be back in a few minutes and walked down toward the corridor toward the elevators. A solid concrete wall separated the lunchroom from a ramp in the public car park. It was supposed to be a no-parking zone, with signs warning of anyone tempted to stop, but it was so close to the offices that nobody took any notice of the rules. As Knapp Macko, and Kilpatrick ate their lunch. A yellow Port Authority van was parked in the zone. One of the basement army, a purchasing agent leaving the maintenance meeting, grabbed a set of keys to the van and drove off to buy some lunch. There were no windows through which the three workers could see another yellow van glide slowly down the ramp and into the same space, end quote. Ismoyle parked near the load-bearing B2 level south wall, the North Tower. There were no security guards to question the driver or the contents in his cabin area. There was no one to stop Ismoyle and the others from parking illegally inside the B2 level. Nobody noticed anything out of the ordinary. Not with so many other rider truck vans who are generally seen in the World Trade Center garages, either unpacking or packing furniture, or depositing items for clients upstairs. Once in the back of the closed Ryder truck, Yusuf handed to Osmoil the box of nitroglycerin. It is stated by Yusef himself that he then inserted a nitroglycerin container into each of the four boxes. Yusuf and Abdul Rahman Yassin constructed the bomb, made the urea nitrate with a main charge of aluminum magnesium, and ferric oxide particles surrounding the explosive. The charge used nitroglycerine, ammonium nitrate dynamite, and smokeless powder, and a fuse as booster explosives. Four tanks of bottled hydrogen were also placed in a circular configuration around the main charge to enhance the fireball. Once that was completed, Yusef and his spoil left the truck through the back as Yusuf attached the 20-foot-long fuses, which was covered in surgical tubing. Yassin calculated that the fuse would trigger the bomb in 12 minutes, after he had used a cigarette lighter to light the fuse. Yusuf and the others then climbed into the Corsica and sped to the exit. With Mohammed Salome driving, he saw something that completely froze him. Ice cold. There... At the mouth of the garage ahead of them was another van blocking the exit. With Salome and Esmoil causing a deathly panic and signaling to the driver to get the hell out of the way, Yusuf simply remained calm, expecting to die by the very device he helped to create. Allah wills it, or so he thought. After three minutes had passed, the driver of the van finally pulled out of the way and Salome gunned the vehicle and sped off to downtown Manhattan, lost in the cold, wintry fog of snow, which had fallen at a steady pace. At 12.17 PM, the bomb ignited. In a split second, the cap exploded with a pressure of around 15,000 pounds per square inch, igniting in turn the first nitroglycerine container of the bomb, which erupted with a pressure of about 150,000 pounds Per square inch, the equivalent of about 10,000 atmospheres. In turn, the nitroglycerine ignited cardboard boxes containing a witch's brew of urea pellets and sulfuric acid. The employees at B2 level were all killed instantly. They suffered for less than a second, according to the FBI bomb experts and leading technicians. It was the only good news from the tragedy. Almost immediately, everything went into complete chaos, not just in the North Tower of the World Trade Center, but also in nearby downtown Manhattan. According to the 9-11 memorial website under Teach and Learn, in the chapter, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, quote, The towers were relatively full when the bombing occurred, as wintry conditions may have kept many inside during the normal lunch hours. The explosion knocked out electrical power to the hotel and significant areas within the North and South Towers, respectively, affecting the operations of the elevators, emergency communication, ventilation systems, and lighting. Emergency power generators were also damaged by the blast and shut down after 20 minutes. Most non-cable television stations in the greater New York area were blacked out as the transmitters atop the North Tower lost power. Hundreds of World Trade Center tenants and visitors were trapped in the elevators, as thousands of others in both towers began to evacuate without guidance from first responders on the scene. Within minutes, the North Tower lobby filled with thick, acrid black smoke. Elevator shafts and stairways were vertical conduits for the smoke, which quickly began to waft from the basement levels, up both towers, and the Vista Hotel. Many others, including survivors and eyewitnesses, basically tell their stories later on.
0: More than seven hours after the rescue and evacuation effort began, emergency workers were worried. Some people might still be trapped in the uppermost floors of the 110-story Twin Towers, people who by now would be scared. If there's somebody trapped out there, what must they be going through right now?
8: Panic, um, a feeling of um, total isolation, uh, the, the forgottenness. The world has just forgotten them and they're all on their own.
0: All afternoon, they've climbed the stairs going floor to floor. Early on, it was a slow process, trying to get thousands of people out through
3: smoke and darkness.
5: We will go every
3: floor, floor by
5: floor. You have a methodical type of you know, uh, search and you make certain that you cover every area and every elevator has to be open. We have to be certain that there's no one in those elevators.
0: The rescue effort was more grisly and difficult down below near the epicenter of the violent blast. That's where firefighters saw people dead trapped in their cars and where they found themselves having to rescue one of their
6: own. When it was finished. The object of use its original intention failed to have the North Tower fall into the South Tower and have both of them landed to lower Manhattan, killing approximately 50,000 people. Yet the bomb certainly provided the worst attack in the city's history. With six people dead, 1,042 people injured, including 919 civilians, 88 firefighters and 35 police officers. The New York City Fire Department sent a total of 750 vehicles to the explosion and did not leave the scene for the next month. What followed was the largest New York City police investigation in the city's history. Those who were inside, like Christopher King from Dean Witter, explained the horror in full. Quote, Once we made the decision to leave, some paddocks sent in. There were no lights, so we put our hands on the person in front of us to see and made a human chain. As we headed down the stairs, it became hotter and hotter. And you never knew if, when you turned a corner, there would suddenly be a wall of flames. A towering inferno was in our midst all the way. When I reached the ground, my face was dark and sooty from the smoke. I was drenched in sweat. But all I cared about was being alive, end quote. Timothy Lang was driving his four-wheel Toyota into the garage around noon, behind a silver Ford. He briefly got out of his car and made small talk with the driver of the Ford while they waited at a ticker booth for spaces to open up. Quote, I was lifted in the air and thrown from the car. My body was compressed. It was pitch black. I thought I was blind. I came to realize I was helpless. I crawled into the fetal position and began to pray. I then headed for a lighted exit sign, only to find the door blocked with debris. After climbing over a wall, I fell over a chair and fell onto a person. I became terrified. The person didn't move. I was crawling in every direction until I came to the lip of the bomb crater. I backed off and curled up, believing I would have to lay there until I was saved or until I died," quote. Andrea Marshall was buying airline tickets on the ground floor of the World Trade Center in the North Tower. Marshall was pregnant with twins on September 11, 2001. She was in Dwayne Reed in the North Tower when the plane struck. That day, in 1993, she eventually made her way home and delivered her children a few weeks later. Lynn Christian was in the same building overlooking Tobin Plaza having lunch. Quote, I could see all these women in pink uniforms coming out of one building and going into another. I thought it rather odd that they didn't have coats on. I just thought that New York was going to become a target a lot more frequently. There was also some sort of crazy activity going on in New York, and this was the beginning of it," end quote. The FBI got the initial reports almost immediately. An enormous explosion happened inside the parking levels of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Neil Herman, the senior FBI supervisory agent in charge of the FBI-led Joint Terrorism Task Force reacted first. According to Herman, the bulletins began flying by 12.21 p.m. Quote, there was a flurry of activity that indicated that might have been a fire or a transformer explosion or something like that. Within about 15 minutes the activity began to increase. I walked down to the World Trade Center about six or seven blocks away with about, with about half a dozen investigators to determine the extent of the damage and see what happened." End quote. James Fox, the FBI assistant director in charge of the New York Bureau, received a call about an explosion at the World Trade Center. The first reports were a transformer had exploded, but he instinctively knew this was no transformer malfunction, but maybe a terrorist attack. Quote, I thought, if this was a transformer explosion, it's the biggest one I've heard of. In this business, you wonder if it's an accident or is it a terrorist-inspired act, end quote. The NYPD phone calls were flooded with reports and victims calling for help and even bomb threats. On a normal day in New York City, the police expect to receive less than 10 bomb threats per day. Between 2 p.m. and 9 p.m. on February 26, 1993, they received 69. By later afternoon, the New York Police Department and FBI came to the conclusion that this was a bomb attack of some kind. In the epicenter of the blast where the truck had parked, the hull went through four levels of the sub-basement of the North Tower. Burning cars were hanging like Christmas tree ornaments, dangling from the edge of each level. It looked like a morbid scene from Dante's Inferno, but this was actually real. The bomb instantly cut off the World Trade Center's main electrical power and knocked out the emergency lighting system. The bomb had caused smoke to rise to the 93rd floor of both towers, including through the stairwells, which were not pressurized, and smoke went up to the damaged elevators in both towers. According to the World Trade Center bombing report and analysis, the damage was quite extensive. Quote, At the plaza level, three levels above the blast, a 100-square-foot section of concrete was cracked and lifted. At the concourse, two levels above the explosion, a 400-square-foot hole was opened in a meeting dining room near the Liberty Ballroom of the Vista Hotel. Glass windows, the partition between the Vista Hotel and Tower One at the concourse level were blown out from the explosion, creating a pathway for heavy smoke migration from the Vista Hotel on Tower One. A section of plaster and lath ceiling above the hole had even collapsed. At the B1 level, one level above the blast, a 5,000-square-foot hole was opened on the ramp leading to the barking garage below. The Port Authority Command Communication Center was heavily damaged and rendered inoperable. Walls and ceilings were heavily damaged. Elevators were also damaged. Seven steel columns were damaged and left without lateral support. At the B-1 level on ground zero, an L-shaped crater approximately 100 by 150 feet at its maximum points was opened, collapsing reinforced concrete and debris onto the levels below. At least nine steel columns were heavily damaged and left without lateral support. Many walls collapsed, including a concrete block wall adjacent to the blast area that collapsed onto a killed Five World Trade Center personnel. Doors and closed walls of Tower One elevator shafts were also heavily damaged. Some 200 vehicles were fully or partially destroyed, and many were on fire. Primary electrical power feeder lines were damaged. Stairway doors and shaft walls were heavily damaged. Some standpipes were even damaged. The sprinkler system in the immediate blast was also destroyed. At the B3 to B6 levels of the explosion, debris from the blast traveled through a three-level architectural opening spanning B3 to B5 and crashed down on in a refrigerating equipment in B5 level. A ceiling of the PATH train station at the B5 level collapsed. A 24-inch diameter water supply pipe from the Hudson River to the air conditioning chillers, as well as other small refrigeration and air conditioning and domestic water pipes were all ruptured. Domestic water lines to the emergency generators were damaged on the B-6 level. Massive damages prevented everything to be operable, end quote. Engine 6 and Engine 7 were the first to arrive on scene. One firefighter, Kevin Shea, from Engine 1, managed to enter the parking garage of the North Tower which by this time, had acrid black smoke billowing out, making it almost impossible to see what was directly in front of him. According to Shea, when he responded to a voice, the floor underneath him gave way near the crater. Quote, I thought we had a fire on the floor and might need a headline. So I turned to tell my partner. Suddenly, the floor underneath gave way and I fell into the crater. I fell 45 feet straight down from the B1 level onto the rubber piled on the B5 level. When I fell, I grabbed onto reinforcing bars sticking out of concrete, but I couldn't hold on. I hit debris on the bottom at the 45 degree angle, feet first, then fell on my back. My leather helmet saved my life. My face smashed into the concrete when I fell. I was conscious the entire time. I landed a few feet away from the fire. Cars were on fire, but they were so mangled, they were completely unrecognizable. My shoulder was slightly burned from being so close to the fire. I didn't realize how far I had fallen or how big the crater was. I saw bright lights of fire all around me. I also heard explosions that were so loud, I could feel them in my chest. I still thought a transformer was involved. Then I heard a call for help. I apparently fell past the first victim that was my lieutenant had originally found. This was the voice of another victim. I tried to crawl to him, but my protruding bone got caught in some debris. I crawled and slid over some panels with metallic finish that once had been part of the hotel's refrigeration area. This second victim was located at the same time I was and he was taken out before I was. I was down in the hole for approximately a half hour. Lieutenant John Fox of squad one was lowered by rope in the same spot where I fell. Other rescuers held the rope as he descended. Fox couldn't see me at first, so I yelled directions to him. A second rescuer, Jack Tiggy, crawled to my direction. Then fire and police personnel conveyed on my location from from different directions. They put me in a Stokes basket and carried me to the following runner. We crossed over the rubble onto an entire level. Then they hoisted me up a ladder to the next level. Then we went across the rubble of that level. Then up another ladder to another level and so on. The crater was configured differently in different areas. Where I fell was a sheer drop, not so in other parts. I was taken to the hospital. It was in the emergency room when I first told that it was a bombing, end quote. The investigation was undertaken by the FBI as the lead agency with the assistance of the ATF and the New York City Police Department. They were hardly experienced with Arab fundamentalism, save for the very few who were involved with the Kahani Nosea murder, which happened two years prior. They were now trying to contact, connect the dots regarding suspects. After the blast, the co-conspirators involved in the bombing had mailed out addresses to various newspapers. The letters have been drafted on the Dal Ayad's computer in New Jersey, as investigators would later find out. The New York Times would publish one of those letters, to which the group, the 5th Battalion of the Liberation Army, was called. However, no such group ever existed. The letter was read in the following, the following letter from the Liberation Army regarding the operation conducted against the World Trade Center. We, the 5th Battalion in the Liberation Army, declare our responsibility for the explosion of the mentioned building. This action was done in response for the American political, economical, and military support for Israel, the state of terrorism, and to the rest of the dictator countries in the region. Our demands are, one, stop all military, economical, and political aid to Israel. Two, all diplomatic relations with Israel must stop. Three, not to interfere with any of the Middle East countries' interior affairs. If our demands are not met, all of our functional groups in the army will continue to execute our missions against military and civilian targets in and out of the United States. This will also include some potential nuclear targets. For your own information, our Army has more than 100 and also 50 suicidal soldiers soldiers ready to go ahead. The terrorism that Israel practices, which is supported by America, must be faced with a similar one. The dictatorship and terrorism, also supported by America, that some countries are practicing against their own people must also be faced with terrorism. The American people must know that the civilians who got killed are not better than those who are killed by the American weapons and supports. The American people are responsible for their actions and their government, and they must question all of the crimes that their government are committing against other people, or they will be the targets of our operations that would diminish them. We invite all the people from all countries, from all revolutionaries in the world to participate in this action with us to accomplish our just goals. If there are any transgressors like prohibition against you, transgress ye likewise against him. Liberation Army, 5th Battalion, Al-Farik al-Rokara, Abu Bakr al Maki. Ramzi Youssef returned to the Pampereau apartment and cleaned up before the preparation to leave the country. He was very disappointed that the tower survived the bombing. However, Mohamed Salome was waiting outside in the Corsica to take him and his wheelman, Iyad Esmoyl, to the airport. They were taken to Kandy, where Youssef was watching one of the televisions which was reporting in the current news of the incident, when he heard only six were killed. Yusuf then got up and went to a payphone. Yusuf dialed the NYPD 800 tip line that had run to the bottom of the television screen and claimed credit for the World Trade Center bombing in the name of the Liberation Army 5th Battalion. Yusuf paid $1,006 in cash for a one way flight to Karachi, connecting onto a quetta in West Pakistan on flight 714. Then, after what seemed like an attorney to Yusuf, The cab pulled back and then forward to take off. The bomb maker's prayers were answered, even in the light of Yusef's non-committal to religion. Many people would come out and proclaim their innocence regarding the bombing, including Omar Omar the Blind Sheikh, Omar Abdel Rahman.
0: A fundamentalist Egyptian cleric insisted again today that he had nothing to do with the bombing of the World Trade Center in New York. Sheikh Omar Abdelrahman also denies knowing two men charged in the bombing who reportedly worshiped at a mosque where he preaches. CNN's Charles Feldman has more on the cleric's interview with CNN.
3: The blind cleric, Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, says neither he nor his mosque nor his religion would tolerate terrorism.
8: This is a false uh, f- accusation
3: that these people who bombed the uh, World Trade Center, they are my followers. These are false accusations. The Sheikh said he does not know either Nidel Ayad or Mohammed Salome, the two men charged in the bombing, although anyone is welcome to worship with him. They can pray in any
6: mosque,
3: but there is no connection between me and the and don't show me to all the world that have been accused. But this man, Mahmoud Abu Halima, now considered a suspect, is said to be close to the sheikh. I don't know him and I don't know where he is. Abu Halima is a cab driver who may have fled to Pakistan after the bombing. He Reportedly, drive. he was once the Sheikh's personal driver. I don't have a car so that how come he drive a car that I don't have? Sheikh Rachman said his religion, Islam, does not condone attacks on buildings or civilians. Uh, indeed, Allah, uh, God uh, does not like those who transgress. But he did have harsh words for the Mubarak government in Egypt, which he called corrupt and oppressive. They control Egypt with fire and iron. And they control uh, Egypt with a police, uh, in police, uh, with a police state and force. Is Iran or anyone else paying for the words that do stir unrest in Egypt?
4: There is no any relation
3: between us and Iran. And there is no any money. Uh, We have received from any government in the The United States is trying to kick the sheikh out of the country But he says the land of God is very large (laughs) Tens of nations will receive me and even if the sheikh may have worn out his welcome with the US government It could be years more before the courts force him to leave Charles Feldman CNN special assignment New York
6: Nancy Floyd got back from lunch, knowing full well that this was no ordinary event. Nancy got a call from Ray Polamowski, the agent, who'd been with her in the subway shop where Selim had issued the final warning. He was right, wasn't he, said Polamowski. At 3.10 p.m. that afternoon, Selim checked into St. Clair's Hospital, complaining of an inner ear infection. As soon as he got to her room with a phone, he called Nancy Floyd. Did you hear what happened? Selim asked. His voice was trembling. Yes, Nancy said. Her ex-asset had been vindicated, but right now she felt nothing but sadness for the victims and for the opportunity lost. I am very nervous about it, said Salem. Nobody listened, and I'm very concerned that the FBI will involve me in this. Don't worry about it, said Nancy, but you know it wasn't them. You know that it had to be. I don't understand, Nancy. Why didn't they take the information? Why didn't they do anything with it? Why, indeed. Why did Carson Dunbar kill the Salem CI operation? Why didn't John Antisep and Louis Napoli treat their investigation into Mahmoud Abelima and Muhammad Salami with extra vigor? Why did the FBI and the New York Police Department Joint Terrorism Task Force kill any additional investigation into the assassination of Rabbi Americana when they found the enormous amount of evidence showing a much larger conspiracy was involved that involved an active U.S. Army F officer in Ali Mohammed? Why did seemingly good men do absolutely nothing in the face of bad actors involved with terrorist Plus? In the late evening hours, ATF agent Joe Hamlin and Donald Sadawi from the NYPD's bomb squad came across a piece of twisted metal on the B-2 level below the towers. It was the part of an axle from a rental van, it seemed. When investigators traced the VIN number, it belonged to an E-50 yellow Ford Line rider truck in the name of Mohammed A. Salomon. It was leased at the DIB leasing in Jersey City, New Jersey. The FBI just could not believe the sheer luck visited upon them. ATF spokesman Jerry Singer would say, quote, sometimes the smallest, mo- most insignificant piece of evidence can be that big break you need in a case. That vehicle identification number was like a signature on an envelope, end quote. From Terry McDermott's book, The Hunt for KSM, the following investigation led to an arrest of one of the perpetrators. Quote, they caught another break when the renter, a man named Mohammed Salome, called the rental agency to report the van stolen and asked for his $400 security deposit back. Because Basid was the financier and had fled the country, leaving his accomplices on their own, Salome was broke and desperately needed the cash from the deposit. When he showed up to collect his money. He was greeted by an undercover FBI agent pretending to be a rioter manager. Refund in hand, Salome was arrested on his way out. Salome reported the theft to the New Jersey City Police, then returned the following Monday and returned to his original rental agreement and tried to get his deposit back. According to an article by the Tampa Bay Times, dated March 5th, 1993, Salome telephoned Thursday morning insisting on his money, and then returned to get the refund. This time, FBI agents were in the office. One agent posed as a writer official, and asked salome about the supposed death of the van outside a ShopRite market in Jersey City. He didn't have a clue as to what was going on, said Patrick Galasso, owner of the rental agency. He thought he was talking to a writer rep. He just wanted that money. Salome signed a paper stating he had rented the vehicle and was given $200 and went out on his way. He was about to board a bus, and he was arrested at 10.05 a.m. by federal agents carrying machine guns, end quote. How then did they conclude that Salome was directly engaged in the planning, fabrication of the explosives, and implementation of the the plan? James Fox, assistant FBI director in charge of the New York office, informed journalists that the critical piece of evidence was a telephone number listed on the rental agreement. Investigators traced the number to an apartment in Jersey City, where they found a letter addressed to Salome as well as the tools and the electronic equipment that indicated the presence of bombs in this apartment of a bomb maker. The number used in the Ryder truck application was traced back to that Israeli woman that I talked about earlier, Josie Thus, in apartment 34 Kensington Avenue, apartment number 4. SWAT teams executed simultaneous raids on apartments in Jersey City and a Brooklyn link to Salome. Agents said they found evidence of a bomb factory, including technical manuals, tools, and wiring devices, as well as physical evidence detected by a trained dog, that explosives had been present. Agents also found a letter from the incident, including a letter from a resident, Josie Hadas, to Muhammad A. Salome. However, Hadass was nowhere to be found. In fact, the Jersey City Police, as well as the FBI, failed to even conduct any further investigation into just who Josie Hadass was or where she came from. Muhammad Salome would claim that he rented the van to haul some materials for Josie Hadass, yet it has remained unreported his point of pickup or his destination, The International Herald Tribune, article dated May 8, 1993, quoted FBI spokesman Joe Vallecouet's familiar response to the reporter's query about the role of Josie Hadass in the Israeli Secret Service, the Mossad, quote, even if it were true, we wouldn't tell you anyway, end quote. It seemed the story of who Josie Hadass was ended just as abruptly as the Kahani assassination. Ramzi Yusuf Abdul Basit Karim would land in Quetta, Pakistan on February 27th. He immediately went into hiding. Neil Herman immediately went to work on the investigation into Youssef. Quote As time went on and we became more knowledgeable of Youssef's background, travel, and aliases, more and more information was being disseminated around the world, said Herman. We were trying to develop information on him that had to be checked and tracked down. Many of the leads we followed were in Pakistan and on the Afghan border, including all roads which seemed to lead back to the Balochistan area. Herman sent his Joint Terrorism Task Force out to the areas on several trips. It was very difficult. Many of the leads turned out to be fruitless, but they had to be pursued, end quote. Frank Pellegrino, an FBI New York field agent, was given the World Trade Center bombing lead by by Dan Herman. He wanted to know just who Rashid was. Rashid was the name Ramzi Youssef went by the mosque in Brooklyn and Jersey City. Pellegrino and two other men from the Joint Terrorism Task Force, Treasury Agent Tom Kelly and Brian Parr from the Secret Service, track leads all over Brooklyn and Queens. Most of the suspects involved were arrested in a short time. Mohamed Salome was arrested on March 4th, 1993. Ahmed Ajaj was arrested on March 9th, 1993. Ndel Ayad was arrested on March 10th, 1993, as the FBI masked his DNA to traces of saliva found in the letters envelope. But Mahmoud Abalima was arrested by Egyptian police on March 14, 1993. As he was handed back to investigators in the United States. This information was captured by the news. As the news reported of Abulima's capture in Egypt, provided the following
5: An Egyptian man described as a central figure in the World Trade Center bombing has been arrested. Law enforcement sources told news organizations he's 33 year old Mahmoud Abu Halima. He was flown this afternoon to New York, from Egypt, where he was arrested last week, by Egyptian authorities. Investigators said he will be arraigned later tonight or tomorrow. The February 26th bombing below the New York skyscrapers killed six people and wounded more than a thousand. Two other men have been charged in the blast, Mohammed Salome, who allegedly rented the van that carried the bomb, and Nidal Ayad, an engineer with knowledge of explosives. All the arrested men are believed to have ties to Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, a radical Muslim cleric living in the United States. His followers in Egypt today marched through the streets of two towns to call for the overthrow of Egyptian President Mubarak. Extremist followers of the sheikh have been blamed for a wave of anti-government terrorist attacks in Egypt over the past year.
6: Other investigations leading to associates with the bombing began as soon as possible
5: federal agents are searching for
2: two former New York City cab drivers now in connection with the bombing at the World Trade Center one is a US citizen who once lived in Iraq the other is an Egyptian immigrant an Egyptian connection has been under investigation ever since the bombing which coincided with a fatal terrorist coffee shop explosion in Cairo Bob Simon picks up the story there
4: It is a state of siege. Whole battalions are deployed in the poor neighborhoods of Cairo. Riot police surround the mosques of this Muslim nation. The government of Hosni Mubarak has declared war on the Islamic extremists who want to overthrow the regime and install a fundamentalist state modeled on Iran. The pillars of the secular Egyptian elite are quaking.
7: The militants are destroying Egypt, destroying Islam,
8: And if we don't really get our act together, then it might really be too late.
4: Nowhere and no one is safe. The extremists are targeting tourists to undermine a foundation of the Egyptian economy. Bombs in Cairo are killing foreigners and business. Very few visitors are returning the gaze of the Sphinx this month. The pyramids are standing alone, as are the merchants of Cairo's Kasbah. Tourism is down some 50%.
7: No tourists. The, in Egypt,
4: the, the state is striking back with murderous raids on fundamentalist strongholds, with mass arrests and military tribunals. Some of these 49 men on trial right now could face the death penalty. From their cage in the courtroom, they proclaim, We are the Islamic group. We killed Sadat. We killed tourists. Our leader is... If in Cairo's poor neighborhoods, the government is represented by force, the fundamentalists are visible in the healthcare centers and clinics they run, and the social services they offer. They are digging deep roots in poor soil and spreading their branches.
6: Abdul Rahman Yassin flew to Iraq and seemingly disappeared in 1994 the Iraqi authorities arrested and imprisoned Yassin and sent an emissary to the State Department to inform that he had crucial information about a perpetrator of the World Trade Center attack and were prepared to cooperate. The State Department did not respond to the offer. On May 23, 2002, the Iraqis gave Lethley Stahl, CBS News, access to an Iraqi prisoner and to the prison of Abdul Rahman Yassin was held in. For a segment on 60 Minutes, where Yassin appeared in prison pajamas and handcuffs. The Iraqis stated that they held Yassin prisoner on the outskirts of Baghdad since 1994. What did Yassin say in regards to the information provided to Leslie Stahl? And why did the Iraqis hold on to him? It was because the Americans didn't want the man who was seemingly participated in the 1993
0: World Trade Center attacks. His prison where, we're told, he went on a hunger strike. Meanwhile, the Iraqis are dangling him as bait in a high-stakes game of international diplomacy. Saddam Hussein has been on an international charm offensive, doing everything he can to prevent and preempt an American attack. He has taken steps to improve relations with Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. He's opened negotiations to allow the weapons inspectors back in. And now, it appears, he's playing the Yassin card. And the dealer is Deputy Prime Minister Tariq Aziz. He says that Iraq has been trying to turn Yassin over to the United States. But he claims the government in Washington doesn't want the $25 million fugitive.
7: Twice we asked them to come and take him. They refused. Is which the... means that they are not sincere in what they are saying they are not honest in what they are saying you see
0: the initial offer to turn yasin over he says occurred during the clinton administration in 1994 a year after that first attack on the world trade center
7: we informed the american government that we have important information about that event if you are interested send a team to Baghdad to get that information.
0: They actually sent an emissary to the State Department to make the offer. But he had few details. For instance, Aziz says the Iraqi emissary did not tell the U.S. that Yassin was in custody.
7: They did not reply. They did not reply at all and they did not...
0: uh, But your information was very vague wasn't it yeah
7: but we showed our uh, goodwill
0: but would you really expect them to respond to that
7: well first of all i have to tell you that we feared that uh, sending yassin back to iraq after arresting him and interrogating him, interrogating him was a sting operation
0: you you thought that the americans were trying to sting you by yes. sending him back yes but for what purpose
7: to tell people later on that look this man who participated in that event now is in Iraq, etc., and use it as they are doing now, using many false pretexts, you see, to uh, hurt Iraq in their
6: This left Abdul Ramzi Youssef, as the only suspect to be apprehended. In Terry McDermott's book, The Hunt for KSM, The Hunt for the Abusive, Ramzi Youssef, also known as Rashid, began. Quote, an international manhunt was launched for Basit with a reward of $2 million for his capture. Tens of thousands of matchbooks were printed up with his photo emblazoned on them. The matchbooks were airdropped near over the half of Pakistan. Basit, or in reality, his alter ego, Ramzi Youssef, became a kind of celebrity in the jihadi world. Every time a bomb went off anywhere, his name came up. And when his name came up, one or more of the team of Pellegrino, Parr, and Kelly hit the road. It got to be kind of a joke, because Basit had officially become enemy number one. He was spotted everywhere. He was driving a gasoline-filled truck to Bangkok. He was bombing American embassies in Asia. Nothing came of the early leads and rumors, so the agents were left to scour every bit of evidence they had on Basit's crew. They tried to trace the money behind the attack, but it had required so little that even that task proved daunting. They did find a record of a bank transfer into the local account of one of the Basit's comrades, Salome, that they couldn't figure it out. It was for $660 for some, so someone identified on the wire transfer as Khalid Sheikh from Doha, end quote. Pellegrino was intrigued. Who was this Khalid Sheikh? It would lead him on a multiple years journey that would be chastised by his superiors at the Bureau and from even his closest associates and friends. Yusuf was quite active after the World Trade Center bombing. In the summer of 94, he allegedly took up a contract to assassinate the Prime Minister of Pakistan, Benazir Bhutto, which was initiated by members of the terrorist group Sipa el Saba. The plot failed when Yusuf and Abdul Hakim Arab were interrupted by police outside Bhutto's residence. Yusuf decided to abort the bombing and, in the charge, blew up as he was trying to recover the device from the sewer. He escaped and went to hiding during the investigation while recovering from his wounds at a hospital. Allegedly, the People's Mujahideen of Iraq, the MEK, cut a deal with Pakistani-born terrorist Ramzi Yousef a year after he masterminded the 93 attack on the World Trade Center in New York City. Yousef also built a bomb that MEC agents allegedly placed in a shrine in Mashhad, Iran, on June 20th, 1994. Demam MiK is an Iranian political military organization that advocates overthrowing the government of the Islamic Republic of Iran. A month after the attack, a Sunni group calling itself al haraka al-Islamiyah al iranian claimed responsibility for the attack. An important tip came at the feet of the U.S. Diplomatic Security Services and the FBI in February of '95 that Yusuf was in a safe house in Islamabad, Pakistan. Detective Matthew Brashear of the Portadores Intelligence Unit was assigned to the contingent that would pick up Basit once the overseas flight landed at an air base near north of the city, New York City. Pellegrino, who is still leading the investigation in Manila, was told to get to Pakistan as soon as possible to accompany Basit on his flight home. Finally, Ramzi Youssef, the mastermind of the 1993 World Trade Center attack, the mastermind behind the international airline bombing plot codenamed Bajinka, the mastermind of the bombing of the Philippine Airlines fight for codenamed Bajinka, Flight 434, the alleged bomber of the Reza Shrine in Iran, and the assassination attempt on Benazir Bhutto was finally arrested on February 7th, 1995 by agents of Pakistan's ISI and special agents of the U.S. Diplomatic Security Services. A tip-off came from an associate of Yusef, Istikh Parker who led them to room number 16 in the Sioux Casa guesthouse in Islamabad, Pakistan. What Pellegrino nor anyone from the United States team arresting Yusuf was aware of was the fact that Khalid Sheikh, the man Pellegrino had been investigating for years was staying in the same building and brazenly gave an interview to Time Magazine as Khalid Sheikh describing Yusuf's capture The New Yorker will later report that the CIA fought with the FBI over arresting Yousef in Pakistan. The CIA reportedly wanted to continue tracking him, and President Clinton was forced to intervene. They also found Yousef had multiple fax and phone numbers for a college, Doha. Doha is the capital of Qatar. College Sheikh Mohammed had been living there openly since 1992. Shortly after being apprehended, U.S. authorities noticed that Yusef called one of these numbers in Qatar and asked to speak to a Khalid. The U.S. already connected Khalid Sheikh Mohammed to the 1993 World Trade Center bombing just weeks after that attack and knew that he was living in Doha, Qatar. There was an entry in Yusuf's seized telephone directory for a Zahid Sheikh Mohammed, Yusuf's uncle, and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's brother. Not long after the discovery is made, Pakistani investigators raid Zahid's offices in Peshawar, Pakistan, but Zahid had already fled. In 1993, U.S. investigators already discovered the connections between Yusuf, Zahid, and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed after raiding Zahid's house in Pakistan and finding pictures of them. In an article by MSNBC dated September 23, 2001, Yusef, while being flown back to face prosecution for his role in the 93 World Trade Center bombing, made a startling partial confection while in the airplane while it shocked the agents handling him. Quote, On day after Ramzi Youssef's arrest in Pakistan, he makes a partial confession while being flown to the United States. Apparently, believing that his conversation with the FBI agents flying with him could not be used as evidence since they are not being written down, He confesses to masterminding the 93 bombing of the World Trade Center. In fact, the agents secretly take notes, and they will be used as evidence in Yusef's trial. As Yusef is flying over New York City on his way to a prison cell, an FBI agent asks him, You see the trade centers down there? They're still standing, aren't they? Yusef responded, They wouldn't be if I had enough money and enough explosives. End quote. Yusuf also soon admits the ties with Wali Khan Amid Shah, who fought with bin Laden in Afghanistan, and Muhammad Jamal Khalifa, one of bin Laden's brother-in-laws, who is being held by the United States at this time. But although Yusuf talks freely, he makes no direct mention of bin Laden or the planned second wave of Operation Bajinka that closely paralleled the latter 9-11 plot, in which many planes would be flown all across the intercontinental United States crashing in the east and west coasts. The FBI debriefs Yusef extensively and he is quite proud of his work. Oftentimes, the FBI would remark on how Yusef seemed to re- revel uh, re- revel in his planning and wanted the agent to know of every detail behind him. But he was also careful not to mention any key names. On January 8th, 1998, US District Judge Kevin Duffy formally sentenced Yusef to life from prison plus 240 years. That followed two separate New York trials as well. Before sentencing, Yusef made a rambling 17-minute statement in which he said, yes, I am a terrorist and proud of it, as long as it is against the United States government. He also denounced the U.S. government as liars and butchers for what he called its support of Israel. Ahmed Mohamed Ajaj, Ajaj, Nidal Ayad, Mohamed Salome, and Mahmoud Abelima were also sentenced to 240 years for their participation into the bombing of the new World Trade Center. Later on, Omar Abdel Rahman would be arrested for his role in the landmarks plot, in which the media covered extensively.
4: Good evening. A blind Islamic cleric is in police custody in New York tonight. Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman became widely known after the World Trade Center bombing last February. His name came up again last week when investigators uncovered a terrorist plot to plant bombs at several New York locations and assassinate some prominent politicians. More now
8: from NBC's John Miller. Sheikh Abdul Rahman surrendered to federal authorities at a New York mosque today. During a two-month undercover probe, the FBI learned that Sheikh Rahman allegedly had advanced knowledge of a plot by his followers to blow up the United Nations, the federal building, and bridges and tunnels in New York, along with the assassinations of pro-Israel politicians. The American people absolutely find it morally repugnant that the the Sheikh be allowed to bounce around. The alleged ringleader in that plot was the sheikh's interpreter. The informant who revealed the plot to the FBI was a former Egyptian colonel who had infiltrated the sheikh's inner circle and become one of his bodyguards. While the sheikh is not charged in that case, his followers have been tied to the World Trade Center bombing which killed six and injured a thousand, and the murder three years ago of militant Rabbi Meyer Kahani in New York. After the Trade Center bombing, federal authorities sought to deport the sheikh for entering the U.S. under false pretenses. He has appealed that ruling, but now his immigration parole has been suspended. Federal authorities say he is a possible threat to society.
5: Open up the door!
8: The sheikh's surrender did not come without a little game of cat and mouse. Last night, a man under a sheet was led out of this mosque by men who said, make way for the sheikh. Authorities speculate it was a test devised by the sheikh's followers to confirm reports that he was going to be taken into custody. If this didn't confirm it, nothing would. The sheikh will be held by immigration authorities till a federal court rules on his appeal. In the meantime, prosecutors and the Department of Justice are still reviewing tapes and transcripts and evidence gathered in their investigations to see if the sheikh may be charged in one of the conspiracies. John Miller, NBC News, New York.
6: On October 1st, 1995, the blind sheikh, Omar Abdel Rahman, was convicted of seditious conspiracy, solicitation to murder Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak, conspiracy to murder President Mubarak, solicitation to attack a U.S. military installation, and conspiracy to conduct bombings. In 1996, he was sentenced to life, in solitary confinement, without parole. It seemed Imad Salem had done his job of not only recording the Rahman cell, but also recordings of his FBI handlers, Salem wanted this as a wild card in case the FBI tried to commit anyone anymore to dubious behaviors connecting to Salem. In the end, the bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993 opened up new wounds, which left many people physically and also mentally injured. Located in the 9-11 Memorial Museum are the following words, which are posted on the website itself. 19 years ago, a group of terrorists detonated explosives into an abandoned van in the public parking garage beneath the door tower of the World Trade Center. This brutal attack killed six innocent people. We remember them. John D. Giovanni, Robert Kirkpatrick, Stephen A. Knapp, William Maco, Wilfredo Ricardo, and Monica Rodriguez Smith their names are now forever inscribed in bronze on the 9-11 memorial among the thousands of names of those killed on 9-11. They remind, they remained with us as inextricably linked and our sacred obligation to never forget those who were killed, end quote. Galius Celitus Crispus once said, a good man would prefer to be defeated than to defeat injustice by evil means. I'm Adam Fitzgerald, host of The Dark Endower. Thank you for listening.